0: Good morning everyone. How are we all doing out there today? I would like to just take a second to acknowledge that it is Carl and Kathy's 40th wedding anniversary today. (laughs) That's amazing. 40 congratulations Carl. (laughs) You're very bold when she's not in the room Carl. Very bold. Well, today we're going to be back in our study of Acts today, and we're going to be uh, preaching a message today called Paul's, uh, Paul's Call and the Battle for a Soul. So before we get into it, let's go and ask the, word, uh, ask the Lord to bless our word today. Lord God, we do come before you uh, bowing before your word, Lord, and we pray that uh, what you have for us today would be clear and that we would be able to apply it to our lives Lord and that it would be a blessing to all of us as we leave here that we would take your word uh, and learn what it means uh, to understand that there is a spiritual battle going on and Satan wants to stop every single soul that he can from hearing this word and believing it Lord so we pray that we would understand this believe it today teach us today Lord we pray in your son's precious name amen well in 1803 The United States completed the Louisiana Purchase, and that pretty much doubled the size of the United States. And at that point in time, the United States expanded about as far west as present-day St. Louis. And Thomas Jefferson wanted to scope out his new land. He wanted to see if there was a way to get from east to west by water. He wanted to see what kind of uh, territory it was, what the terrain was like, what kind of natural resources were available to him uh, in this new territory that he uh, had acquired. And so uh, Lewis and Clark were explorers of the early 19th century, and they were hired for the job to go out and explore this land and report back to Jefferson what this land was going to be like. And, uh, you know, when we think about the Midwest today, uh, we know that it's civilized, it's populated, but back then it was filled with people who were hostile to them, and they had no idea what they were going to face as they took their first steps heading westward. What kind of terrain would they encounter? What kind of hostility would they encounter from uh, the natives who had already lived in the place? And how big is this country? We don't even know. Uh, What obstacles are we going to find along the way? And I think about them walking across maybe a 1,000 miles and they reach the base of the Rocky Mountains and looking up at the Rocky Mountains thinking, now what do we do, right? After they already walked as far as they had walked, and what an incredible challenge that must have been to their confidence as they were thinking about that. Well, I kind of think of Paul in the same way. As we come to this part of the book of Acts, we move into the second part of the book of Acts where the missionary journeys begin, and he is going to move out now into hostile territory, and he 's going to be facing spiritual mountains that are every bit as big and as daunting as the Rocky Mountains that Lewis and Clark would have come across, and he 's going on faith and he 's going in trust uh, on trust in God who has saved him and who has taken him this far now up through chapter twelve in acts we 've seen the Gospel spread in Jerusalem and Judea and as far as Samaria, following the pattern of Acts chapter one, verse eight, uh, which was Uh, Which we covered earlier, but now come the missionary journeys where Paul is going to take this gospel and he's going to take it to the remotest parts of the earth as far as the known world is. And as we come, uh, as we came a couple weeks ago to the end of chapter 11, we saw that there was this new church that had been founded in Antioch, uh, that was founded as a result of these uh, believers who had been persecuted in Jerusalem after Stephen's death, and they had fled and they had fled north to Antioch. And there's this young fledgling church there. And this was going to be the new home base for Christianity. Uh, Jerusalem was still going to be the mother church, but Antioch is the church that the missions are going to be sent from. And it's from Antioch that the gospel is going to spread to the ends of the earth. And Peter had been the central figure of the book, but now Paul is going to be the central figure of the book as we get into this second half. And so we're going to start studying the missionary journeys. Uh, The first missionary journey is chapter 13, and 14. We're only going to get a short way in that journey today, but we want to study these journeys, and particularly this this first missionary journey, because we need to understand that Satan is out there, and he's going to oppose everything that we want to do to spread the gospel. It was true in Paul's day, and it's true today, and so we need to know that he's out there and how we're going to deal with him. Uh, Paul was converted in chapter 9, but here we are even more than 10 years later now in chapter 13, And now he's going to receive this call to missions ministry, where he's going to take the gospel around the world. So first we'll look at Paul's call, and then we're going to look at the battle for a soul. So the call of Paul and Barnabas, uh, verses 25 to 33. And here's the main point of this section, and that is that we must be ready to obey the Holy Spirit wherever and whenever he leads, as Saul and Barnabas were. So in verse 12 25, Uh, we're told that uh, Paul and Barnabas had returned from their trip to bring this relief to Jerusalem, and they had brought back John Mark with them. So it's John Mark, it's Saul, it's Barnabas, and they're in Antioch now. And this is just to locate John Mark, because we're going to see him again in a couple of verses. This is the same John Mark, by the way, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. So he's a very important character in Christianity. And then as we get into chapter 13, we see that there are five leaders of this early church in Antioch, and Barnabas is named first, and perhaps that's because he's the oldest of them. Uh, We're not really sure, Uh, but then there are others named as well. Uh, Barnabas was a Jew from Cyprus, but then next we have Simeon. That's a a man with a Jewish name, Uh, but his nickname is Niger, which means he may have had dark complexion. He may have been from Africa. Uh, We don't know, but Niger is a Latin name, so uh, perhaps uh, he was from a place where Latin was spoken. Uh, Lucius was from Cyrene, which is in North Africa. Uh, so that's kind of far away from where they are in Antioch. Menean is interesting. He was raised with Herod. That's Herod Antipas. Uh, so he was a boyhood friend raised in the same court as Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is the Herod who ruled during the time when Jesus was, uh, having his ministry. Uh, Herod Antipas was responsible for the death of John the Baptist, and yet his childhood friend Menean becomes a Christian, and he's one of the leaders of the early church in Antioch. And Menean would have had considerable influence because of his relationship uh, with Herod. And then the last one mentioned is this Saul, right? This Jewish man trained in the rabbinical schools. And so you have five men who are just incredibly diverse from different areas of the country, a different ethnically, perhaps racially, and yet they come together and they are the leaders of this early church. And we're told that these men are prophets and teachers. Now, a prophet is one who can tell the future, but it's also one who goes around traveling about telling the truth of God. A teacher indicates one who tends to stay more uh, in one central location, but these men are both prophets and teachers. And so they're, they're teaching and they're, they're leading this church in Antioch. And we're also told that they're ministering to the Lord and they are fasting and they're waiting for the Lord's direction for them and for the church. To minister to the Lord, that's what they're doing, right? We often think that we all need ministry, right? We minister to others, but we minister to the Lord when we serve him. And when we serve others, we minister to the Lord as well. And that's what they were doing. They prayed and they fasted and they waited for the Lord. And it was then that they received their call. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work for which I have called them. So they're set apart. To be set apart means to be separated from other things, right? You're being set apart for one thing means you're being separated from the things that you used to be a part of. And In this case, it's leadership in the church in Antioch. They're going to not do that anymore because they're going to be set apart for some other specific task. But if you're going to be set apart for the work that God has for you, that means you have to surrender your desires to his desires. You can't hold on to the things that you want to do anymore because you're set apart for the work that he has called you to do. Well, they don't mention specifically here what the work is going to be that they're going to do. And so it's like Abraham, when he was called out from Ur, he was called to a land that he did not know. God just said, go to a land that I will show you. And so you have... Barnabas and Saul here being told to go. I've called you out to a specific uh, purpose. And so these guys all fasted and they prayed again and they laid hands on Barnabas and Saul. And then they sent them out. They released them from their duties uh, in the uh, church in Antioch and released them to whatever it was that the Lord would have for them to do that they were to be set apart for. And so what we're going to see here is the first organized, intentional Missions since the church was established. Now we have a church, and what is the purpose of the church? It's to make more disciples, and these guys are going to go about making more disciples. It tells us that God loves missions. Why does God love missions? Because missions are designed to save the lost, and God loves when lost people hear the gospel, and get saved. And so God loves to see lost people get saved, which is why he loves missions, which is why we need missions. That's why we travel around the world. That's why we send our money to missionaries, so that people hear the gospel and get saved. So let me ask you a question. Has God called you to some specific mission that he has for you, and have you obeyed? I believe that there are many times in our lives that God calls us to some specific mission or ministry that he has for us, and sometimes he's got something really specific in mind, and we know what it is, and sometimes we obey him, and sometimes we don't. Uh, I want you to know that God won't ask you to do anything that he won't also equip you to do. So if he has called you to do something Don't be concerned that you don't have the resources or the ability or the time. God will equip you for all of that. Remember Moses, when he was sent to go to speak to the Egyptians, he said, I am slow of speech. Uh, How will they listen to me? And God said, was it not I who made your tongue, Moses? I will work you through it. And so when God gives us a, a call, we can trust that God will equip us to fulfill the call that he's got on him. Abraham had no idea where he was going, like I said, but God provided for him and directed him all along the way, even when Abraham had his couple of slip-ups, right, where he lied and talked about who uh, Sarah wasn't instead of who she actually was. Uh, He'll do the same for us. So you may need to pursue a mission or a ministry uh, that God has placed on your heart. And maybe it's been there for a long time, but you just haven't acted on it. Uh, God will equip you for it. Uh, God may be calling you to maybe volunteer at a homeless shelter, or a a soup kitchen, or a shelter for battered women, or at the O. Henry School, or who knows, countless other missions that exist. Uh, Don't leave a task that God has called you to do undone. Uh, One purpose of the church is missions, and if we're going to fill our purpose, we have to be willing to go out when God calls us and to fulfill that mission. So have courage. God is with you. Barnabas and Saul were ready to go wherever and whenever the Holy Spirit led. And we need to do the same. So that's Paul's call. Now let's look at the battle for a soul. And here's the main point here. Winning souls is not easy. Satan will oppose us with everything he has. Have you found that to be true in your life? Can I get an amen from you if you have? Amen, right? It's not easy to win souls. You're battling against people and their preconceived ideas and their hostility and their fighting against you. And not only that, but Satan is behind the scenes fighting against you too. It's hard to win souls. We see this in three phases here. We're going to see the conflict with this man named Elymas uh, first, as we look at verses four to eight. Uh, We see that though the the, uh, church released them from their duties at the church of Antioch, it's actually the Holy Spirit that sends these men out in verse four. And it's the Holy Spirit that was going to be guiding them on this missionary journey that they were on. And he guided them first west from Antioch to Seleucia, uh, which is about a 16 mile walk. Let me just show you on the map. This is Antioch up here. It's about 16 miles here to Seleucia. And then they're gonna get on a boat and head for this island of Cyprus. So that's where they're going. Uh, they boarded a ship, they went to the island of Cyprus, and then they found themselves on the east coast of Cyprus there. Uh, that's where Barnabas was from. We're told that earlier in, in uh, the book of Acts. So that would be familiar territory for, to uh, Barnabas, and perhaps that's why uh, they started their journey there. We already know also from chapter 11 that there are lots of Christians already living in Cyprus, so that the, the territory won't be completely hostile to them. They'll have some, some friends and brothers there. So when they reach Cyprus, they begin preaching in this place called Salamis, which is there on the east coast of Cyprus. And they began preaching in the synagogues there. And it was always Paul's practice to go first into the synagogues and try to speak to the Jews first. And then if that were unsuccessful, if he were rejected there, then he'd go off uh, and preach to the Gentiles. And so in chapter, or in verse five, we're told for the first time now that John Mark, who returned with them in, in chapter 12, was with them as their helper. And we're not told at all what John Mark did, whether it was ministry help or whether it was just being a gopher or whatever it may have been, but he's with them helping. But he's not going to last long. Next week, we're going to see that John Mark is going to desert them. Uh, And we'll talk about that when we get there. Uh, But we're not told even any specific response to the gospel in Salamis. All we're told is that they continue crossing west uh, across that island until they reach the west coast of Cyprus, and they see they come to this town called Paphos, which is over here on the west coast of Cyprus. Already in this first missionary journey, in just a couple verses, we have seen Paul's missionary strategy. He goes to the cities first, because that's where all the people are. He goes to the synagogues, and he goes to the synagogues because he wants to preach to the Jews first. If he's rejected there, he'll move out from there. And we also see that he does ministry as a team, which is a wonderful model for us uh, to do ministry as a team. And that's why I love uh, some of the ministries that we do in this church. It, our Sunday school, for example, is team taught. Our elders is a team. Uh, our, what we do with our children is a team. We, we do ministry in teams. That's a very biblical model uh, for how we do ministry. So, uh, and we get it from the book of Acts. Well, when they get to Paphos, they meet this magician a sorcerer, a false prophet he 's called, whose name is Bar Jesus, which means son of Jesus. Bar means son of. So uh, that is his actual Hebrew name. And this man found himself in part of the entourage of this Roman proconsul by the name of Sergius Paulus. Uh, he's the proconsul, that means he's kind of the governor of that particular area. So he is a very uh, important man, uh, and he's described as an intelligent man. now, It was not uncommon for Romans to have uh, a a host of spiritual advisors. Romans were pagans, of course, uh, but the Jews were known and considered to be people who uh, had religious background and understanding and could be uh, helpful to a Roman as he's seeking counsel for what he might do. And so, this Bar Jesus, he enjoyed a very high position in Sergius Paulus's government because he was one of his spiritual advisors. But Saul and Barnabas were about To threaten his position. And that was danger for Saul and Barnabas. So somehow Saul and Barnabas's uh, teaching had reached the ear of of Sergius Paulus. And and Sergius Paulus summoned them to come and speak the word of the Lord to uh, Sergius Paulus. And so now Luke gives us the magician's Greek name, which is Elymas. Uh, Elymas is the man's Greek name, for so it is translated. Uh, So this Elymas, he would be terrified that if Sergius Paulus believed what Paul and Barnabas said, then he was going to lose his position and place. And so he's very eager to steer the proconsul away from whatever it is that Paul and Barnabas might have to say. Uh, So he opposed them. And I would have loved to have a record of Paul's gospel presentation, right, to uh, Sergius Paulus here. And I would have loved it if Elymas's response to whatever Paul said was recorded. But we don't get that, unfortunately. Uh, all we get is Paul just railing against Elymas, which is pretty good in and of itself. Uh, but I would have liked to have had the, at least the gospel presentation. Uh, but unfortunately, Luke only reported Saul's condemnation of Elymas. But before we get to that, I want to ask you another question. And that's this. Do you have people in your life who seem to oppose you in all that you say and do, especially with regard to your faith. In other words, do you have an ilimas in your life, right? We all have ilimases in our lives, people who seem opposed to everything that we stand for, everything that we believe, particularly with regard to our faith. They view the world differently than we do. Uh, They have a different worldview than we have. Uh, We can't talk politics or religion around them, or we know that it's going to be all-out warfare, right? And, and sometimes we want to avoid all-out warfare, so we avoid the landmines that we step on that are going to create this all-out warfare. And we do this particularly when it comes to family, because family is always going to be family, and you're, you just, you're born with them, and you're stuck with them, so you want to keep peace with them. And so you, sometimes you'll avoid those landmines where, uh, where it comes to politics. But when it comes to religion, and when it comes to the salvation of someone's soul, I think we we can't avoid those landmines. I think we have to speak out boldly and we have to tell these people what the truth is when salvation is on the line. Our, Our unbelieving family members have to know how it is to get to heaven or else they will perish and we don't want them to perish. So if they hear it from us and they reject it, well, you know, that's not our job. Our job is simply to scatter the seed. It's the Holy Spirit's job to do the work and make that seed take root and to cause them to repent and to cause them to believe all we can do is spread the seed no person has ever made anybody believe that's the holy spirit's work to do so we ask the holy spirit uh, when we witness to somebody we pray and we ask the holy spirit to do the work as we scatter the seed Uh, in our passage today what we're witnessing is the spiritual battle for one soul the soul of sergius paulus and what we see here is that he's just one man, he's just one soul, but every single soul is of, a, of infinite value to God. And so in terms of a human conflict, we have elimas on one side with Satan and his demons behind him, and we have Saul on the other side speaking the truth and the Holy Spirit uh, trying to do his work uh, it's a battle of the spiritual realm. Even though we have two human beings standing before Sergius Paulus, this is a spiritual battle that is going on. And so uh, when we think about that, every time we witness to somebody, we need to understand that there is a spiritual battle going on because Satan does not want us to preach the gospel to somebody, and he certainly doesn't want that person to believe. So we have to be aware that Satan has his, his tricks and his schemes to stop people from believing. And we need to call on the Holy Spirit to help us when we witness. So let's see how Saul represents God in this battle. We'll look here at Saul's condemnation of Elymas. Verse 9 begins, but Saul, also known as Paul. So for the first time, he's called Paul in the book of Acts. Saul was his Hebrew name, and he's been called Saul all the way up to this point in Acts because he's been ministering in Hebrew context. But uh, as a Roman, he would also have a Roman name, and that name was Paul. And now, since he's now witnessing to pagans and Romans, Luke is going to use his Roman name, Paul, from now on. And he's not going to call him Saul again uh, in the book of Acts because his mission is now to Gentiles. So in verse 9, Paul is filled With the Holy Spirit. And we've talked about this before. We've talked about how you're baptized by the Holy Spirit, and then you can have multiple fillings over and over again in your life as God sees fit for times of special need as the Lord uh, would have you uh, be filled. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul was filled here, uh, and he, he fixes his gaze, Paul does, on Elymas, and harshly rebuked him this is great, you who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all unrighteousness or of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? That is a beat down. And so uh, when you hear that and Sergius Paulus is watching, you know, you've taken a pretty good rebuke in front of your boss. And so how you respond as, as, Serg- as uh, Elymas is going to tell a lot about what kind of power you have. And it turned out that Elymas had no power at all, right? Paul said he was full of deceit because he was trying to keep Sergius Paulus from hearing and knowing the truth, so that Elymas could maintain his high position. Uh, Paul called him son of the devil, which is exactly opposite to what his name Bar Jesus actually means. It means son of Jesus, but here he is being called son of the devil. The scriptures say, "Make straight the ways of the Lord," but here is. Elimos making crooked the ways of the Lord, which is metaphorical language to say that he's making it very hard for people to follow after God. And so that is the condemnation. And next comes the judgment in verse 11. Elimos will not see the sun for a time. This is a lopsided battle, right? When you have God on one side and Satan on the other side, it's not a fight, right? I mean, they they line up to, to fight, but it's not a fight. Uh, When the Lord comes again, Revelation 19 tells us that there will be multitudes and multitudes of Satan's armies on the battlefield arrayed for battle against the Lord. And then the Son of Man will appear with the sword coming out of his mouth and they will all fall down dead without there ever even being a fight. They're just going to die in his presence because that is the power of God against the power of Satan. Now, Satan surely has power. I don't want to say that he has no power, but compared to the infinite eternal God, his power is nothing at all. And so that is the God of the universe compared to Satan. So Elymas and his uh, um, Satan or, or the demons that were supporting him never had a chance against the power of Paul filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, when you hear language like this being used by Paul, Filled with the Holy Spirit, and then speaking so harshly uh, to this man, who God would love to be saved, does that disturb you at all? Uh, Does does it disturb you that 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 Paul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, could be so mean to Elymas? Uh, I thought about that for a minute, and I said, No, I don't think that bothers me at all, because these are tools that God would use to try and correct a man's course. Uh, But if you think, how could How could Paul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, speak like this to Elymas? We have to understand that God is a God of love. He wants Elymas to be saved, but he's also a God of wrath, and he's a God of judgment as well. And that's the language that he's using, is this language of judgment to hopefully make a convert. God is loving, but he has to be full of wrath at the same time. He loves us all. He sent his one and only son to die for each and every one of us so that if we will believe in his son, we will be saved. We will not face the condemnation. Uh, and he's also promised that he has prepared a place for us. And he will come and he will take us home to that place again. And we want people to go to that place too. And so sometimes this kind of language that was used with Elymas may be necessary. But God also, he's full of wrath. And we have to understand that. And in, in our society, we deal with so many people Uh, in this postmodern way of thinking, who believe that God is a God of love only and not a God of wrath. They cannot abide by a God of wrath. But God hates sin, and he will require payment for sin, and he'll require it from us if we will not accept his Son as our Savior. And he will also punish those who prevent people from hearing the truth and accepting his Son as Savior as well. And that's why Jesus said to the Pharisees in Luke chapter 11, Verse uh, 52, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. So they are going to face judgment as well. Uh, You can't have a God of love without having a God of wrath. God would not be loving and just if he did not punish sin. And if he allowed sin without punishment, then he could not be a God of justice. And we want a God who is both just and loving. Just this week, I read about a man uh, in Tennessee who had been on death row uh, for 30 years for killing a seven-year-old girl. And he was just executed after multiple appeals uh, this past Thursday, 30 years on death row. Uh, And if the state didn't punish that man, there would be no justice, right? And if the state is ever going to be called good, then the state has to punish and God is the same way. He has to punish what is evil. And if he doesn't do that, then he could never be seen as just. So there will be severe judgment against all who do not accept Jesus as their savior. That's John 3:36. The wrath of God will remain on them. We have all sinned. Someone has to be punished for sin. We thank God that Jesus Christ has taken our punishment. So we will not have to suffer that punishment. But for those who re- refuse to accept that free gift, well, there will be great and eternal punishment. I think actually God was incredibly gracious to Elymas. He only said you will be blinded for a short time, right? He could have killed him on the spot there, or he could have made his blindness permanent. When you think about Elymas, it's, it's kind of hard not to see the parallel between Paul and chapter nine, right? Paul was made blind for a short period of time, and it was Paul's encounter with the living Jesus that made him blind, but also led to his spiritual sight. And we don't know what happened with Elymas. We're not told, uh, but we always know that until someone draws their last breath, there is hope for that person. And so we continue to hope for our unsaved loved ones, that as long as they have breath in their lungs, that they still may hear the gospel and believe it. So here's my question to you. Are you Willing to speak the truth, even when it is difficult to help people receive God's love rather than his wrath. I've taken several of those spiritual inventory tests. I don't know if you've ever taken those. They tell you what your spiritual gifts are. I always come out very low on evangelism because I just tend not to be the most outgoing guy in the whole world. Uh, so sometimes going up to, ev- to evangelize a stranger is difficult to me. Uh, but that does not excuse me. I don't get to say, well, You know, evangelism is not one of my spiritual gifts, so I'm not going to do it. No, it tells me that I actually have to work harder at that because it's not something that comes naturally to me. We all have to be the same way. We have to be willing to tell the truth, even when it's difficult, because uh, these people's eternity is on the line. We have to speak the truth. We have to trust God with the outcome. Think about Paul's courage here. Paul is speaking to a powerful governor, He's speaking to one of his spiritual advisors, and he speaks this harshly to one of Sergius Paulus's spiritual advisors. That could have landed Paul in jail. It could have landed him uh, with a beating. It could have ended up with him getting killed. Who knows? But we were told that Sergius Paulus wanted to know the truth, and so he wanted to hear the truth, and he was willing to listen to Paul tell him the truth. And now that he heard it and he saw the physical judgment uh, on Elymas, let's see... How he responded. Let's look at the conversion of Sergius Paulus, verse 12. Then the proconsul believed what he when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. And so the physical blindness of Elymas results in the spiritual sight of Sergius Paulus, the proconsul. The miracle was impressive for sure, but he also believed the teaching of the Lord. He believed. He was a believer, Sergius Paulus. And now imagine the influence that this man may have had as the governor of this province. Now being a believer, how many people may have come to faith through him? Now this is the first Gentile convert who had no religious background whatsoever, right? Other than paganism. We saw with Cornelius, he had familiarity with the one true God because he was among the Jews. And so he knew about that God. He was a God-fearer but Sergius Paul has had none of that. He's the first Gentile convert out of a pagan background. And so we see the gospel truly spreading now to the ends of the earth and affecting people who have no religious background at all. And so Paul, as you think about him, think about him standing up as he's, he's about to go on his first missionary journey, just like he's looking uh, at the base of the Rocky Mountains, looking up at these impassable uh, mountains, intimidating mountains. So think about him. Uh, taking a huge step forward in his faith as he goes out and starts to witness to people who would be very hostile to him. He's moving even further from his Jewish roots and being identified by his Gentile name and doing it by evangelizing Gentiles rather than Jews, which he was. So, let me ask you a final question. If God could find a way to save a Roman proconsul who was prevented from hearing the truth by a Jewish huckster, can God not find a way to save the person that you are praying for? So right now, I want us to bow our heads, and I want you to think about that person in your life who you have been praying for, and just make a picture of that person in your mind, and just pray. Ask God if he will save that person, and uh, we'll give you a few seconds to do that. Lord God, would you be mighty, mighty to save? It's your work to save these people, Lord, and we just scatter the seed. We, we have each lifted someone up to you and we are uh, giving blessing to you, uh, pray, praying that you will save the people that we would like to uh, be saved and that we've prayed for right now. So let's draw out some applications from this passage. Here's the first thing I want you to see, and that is that every single soul is valuable to God. 2 Peter 3, 9, a verse we know well, the Lord is not slow, about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Jesus Christ died for the sin of the entire world. He wants us all to come to repentance, and he's promised to come again. And that could happen today. Do we believe that? Do we believe that Jesus Christ could come again today? He could. Amen. He could come again today. And I pray that if he does, he would find each one of us ready But there's bad news. Satan will fight to prevent the salvation of any soul and every soul. Satan knows the Bible. He quoted scripture to Jesus three times when Jesus was in the wilderness for those 40 days. And I think Satan knows how the story ends. He knows that he's going to end up in the lake of fire. And he's going to fight to change that outcome if he possibly can. But if he can't, he wants to drag every single one of us that he can with him into that lake of fire. And he has many traps and schemes for getting us to go there with him, getting us out of heaven. And so Elimas is just one of his minions doing this work. But Satan has so many schemes. He distracts us uh, with things that will take us from God. And he causes us to delay making a decision for Christ. And he causes us to, to doubt our salvation. He causes us to uh, believe that we don't deserve God's grace. He causes us to uh, believe his distorted uh, version of scripture. Uh, all these things are some of the tricks in his arsenal that he uses so that we will not believe or so that we will turn away from the faith. We have to understand that ours is a spiritual battle that can only be won with God fighting on our side. And so when we are immersed in the word and when we're immersed in prayer, that's when we have God's full armor on us and that protects us from Satan. But we need to know, Satan is relentless. Jesus called him the prince of this world. So he's not going anywhere until Christ comes again. So we have to be aware that he's out there and that he is our spiritual enemy trying to destroy us. And we have to rely on God. And so we have to expect that when we witness, Satan is always going to be there to oppose us. But there's good news. And the good news is that God's Holy Spirit, there's no greater power than God's Holy Spirit. And so by the power of that Holy Spirit, we are invincible. We can do anything by his power, even though Satan opposes us, God's plan for our lives cannot be thwarted because of God's Holy Spirit. You know that Satan had to ask permission from Job before, or from God before he was able to test Job, and that tells us that nothing can happen outside of God's permission or knowledge. And so when we think about that, it makes us understand the power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit helped to create the universe. The Holy Spirit's power raised Jesus from the dead and the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And so that's incredible power that we have available to us. We're unstoppable when we allow the Holy Spirit full reign and control over our lives. And so because God loves missions, we need to think about being more global Christians. We need to be global Christians. Think about Paul's life. Paul didn't do anything small, right? Paul did everything big. Paul dreamed big. Paul thought big. He did missionary journeys big. Everything about Paul, he did big. His first missionary journey covered 900 miles, and that was by far the shortest of his missionary journeys. Uh, We just drove to Chicago. That's 900 miles to Chicago. That is a long, long way. And that's how long he went just on his first journey. He's going to go thousands of miles on the next two. Paul wanted to take the gospel to the whole world. And in Romans chapter 15, he said, I have preached the gospel from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum. And now he wanted to preach the gospel in Rome and Spain as well. And we know that he did get to Rome, right? Under imprisonment, he got there and he preached the gospel there. And, And many believe that he did get to Spain too after he was released from that first Roman imprisonment. We need to think big. We need to dream big too. I get so excited when I look out over this group and I see new faces and and new people are joining us and our congregation is growing and that's so exciting to see our church grow and uh, it's a wonderful blessing of God, and I want us to think about growing our church, but I want us to think even bigger than that. I want us to think about how we can support missionaries more, even more than we do who are out doing the work, and I want us to think about how we can be missionaries ourselves more than we are. That doesn't mean we have to go to Africa. That means we can go across the street, right, and be a missionary in that way. We can be missionaries even where we are. How can we do that more? How can we reach the world, change the world for Christ like Paul did? Even though we're small in number, we are mighty by the power of the Holy Spirit. Those of us who are willing to, to use the power of the Holy Spirit and be used by God. I think it's incredible to, to wonder what God might do with a small bunch of committed Christians. And so I pray that each one of you is thinking right now about how God might, might be wanting to use you uh, to do his work on earth right now. I hope you're dreaming big dreams right now, thinking big thoughts about what we can accomplish and how you can contribute to God's mission to take the gospel to the ends of the world world like Paul did. Let's pray. Lord God, your Holy Spirit is just the most powerful thing that there is, and by it, we can do anything that you would purpose for us to do, Lord, if we would just have the courage to go. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage to go, like you gave Paul the courage to go. And Lord, if, if we're not able to go for whatever reason, I pray that you would give us the courage to send. That will cost us our resources, and that will cost us things that we might not want to part with, Lord. But when Barnabas and Saul were set apart, For the work that you had them. That means they were separated from other things, Lord. So help us to be separated from the things that would hold us down from this work of missions that you would have us do, whether it be going or whether it be sending. We are obligated to do either or both. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the ability, the courage, and the mindset uh, to do these missions, Lord. It is your desire that all would come to repentance, Lord. And we pray that you would help us uh, as we or just six months into our new building here, Lord, that you would help us, give us ideas, give us vision for what you would like us to do, where you're working, how we can join you there, Lord, and how we can spread the wonderful good news of Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead and that he's coming again, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' matchless name, amen.